Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. This is Jan Bartlett with Tuesday Home Time between 4 and 6 today. On the program today, campaign to persuade superannuation funds from divesting from nuclear weapons. A result of a trial of the journalist in Western Sahara, in occupied Western Sahara. A campaign to force oceanic gold out of the Philippines, preparing for Hiroshima Day. The situation in Syria and why an Australian mining company should not be in Eritrea. But first, Mr Kevin Healy. A week, journalist, when we have to admire US of the UN of the US of the world, big supremo Donald Trump or the pause restraint after the Her Most Gracious Majesty's home country ambassador said hurtful and clearly inaccurate things about him, inept, dysfunctional. Come on, where did that come from? Monday, as the leaked lies emerged, Donald, in his usual controlled way, shouted over a noisy helicopter about to take him from his New Jersey golf club to his day job that the ambassador has not served the US, the UK well. We're not a fan of that man. I can say things about him, but I, I won't bother. See? We have to admire the man, ignore the insults, restraint, maturity, don't bother. That was Monday. From then on, he did bother. Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. Not only that, I do not know the ambassador. He is not liked or well thought of within the US off. We will no longer deal with him. But Donald also turned his restraint, restrained vitriol, on Her Most Gracious Majesty's home country, Big Supremo, brackets temporary, Theresa down with May Day. What a mess she and her representatives have created. Then, with his equally respected modesty, I told her how it should be done, but she decided to go another way. The good news for the wonderful Her Most Gracious Majesty's home country is that they will soon have a new Big Supremo. But Donald had every right to be upset. The ambassador, not one person in the U.S. of likes or is well thought of, Sir Kim, that, that's his name, said, As seen from here, we really don't believe that the administration is going to become substantially more normal, less dysfunctional, less unpredictable, less faction-riven, less diplomatically clumsy and inept. Donald radiated insecurity and US of policy on Iran was incoherent. He wrote confidentially and hasn't the confidential bit worked to treat, but how the hell would we know conclusively if his Iran policy is incoherent or not? It, it might be just the way he says it. The Foreign Secretary, one of the candidates for Theresa's job, said Sir Ken's views were his own and not the view of the Her Most Gracious Majesty's home country government. Our view is that the administration over time just may become a bit more normal. By week's end, Sir Kim had beaten Theresa out the door, by which time Donald was saving the US of from these non-white women attempting to take over the place by getting themselves elected to Congress. Terrorist-related backgrounds like Palestinian, non-country, non-people, Afro-American, Somali, Puerto Rico... 
And on the latter, we've all heard how I like to be in America says nasty things about the greatest country ever. And Donald told them to go back to where they came from, which for all but the Somali refugee is just down the road, so to speak. But Donald said they came from countries whose governments are a complete and total catastrophe, the worst, most corrupt and inept anywhere in the world. Now loudly and viciously telling the people of the US of the greatest and most powerful nation on earth, how our government is to be run. Why don't they go back and help fix the totally broken and crime-infested places from which they came? They can't leave fast enough, he added, and so they went home to their U.S. of homes. He got the state of our country spot on, they chorused, and as an exercise in dividing his opponents, his tactic worked a charm, forcing Democrats, who considered the four women a bit too radical, to rush to their defence. And note, he agreed with the inept bit, so the Her Most Gracious Majesty's home country ambassador taught him a new word. Speaking of attacks, how dare human rights campaigner Amal Clooney get stuck into true blue Aussie over a couple of raids on press officers and a journalist's home by our federal, uh, sorry, our protectors of our freedoms, suggesting we give an excuse to even more re repressive regimes, bringing us back to that incoherent problem, because that great thinker Barnacle sprang to, her to, to our defence, in which I think he was trying to say those raided knew they were breaking the law, which leads us to ponder, given our great respect for Barnacle's legal opinions, well, almost legal judgments, why they haven't all been charged. And the Socialist Party Supremo and would-be big Supremo, Anthony Albinuzzi, said we must defend the freedom of the press. The Socialist Party believes Lord Rupert of Wapping and the other media barons must have the freedom to publish the rubbish they fabricate. It's their wealth-given right. And after the election, let me say the Socialist Party has no problems whatever with right-wing rubbish. After all, right-wing rubbish won the election. And we have learned from that result. And a week when the Uluru Statement from the Heart ran up against the Canberra cons with no heart. The token minister for keeping the black non-people in their place said the government could put part of the statement to a referendum within three years. No miles away with him, although he warned we couldn't rush these things and 231 years obviously isn't quite long enough and thus the Uluru Statement from the Heart ran up against the Canberra cons with no heart. But then... Thanks to the no hearts, 231 years won't matter because the very people who determine energy and fry the planet policy that we can't afford to save the planet, but my God, it will die with a healthy economy, those very people tell us truth, treaty, reconciliation and indigenous voice would be divisive and they hate anything divisive like, say, a same-sex marriage plebiscite. Oh, no, no, of course, in that case, the usual suspects assured us it would not be divisive. But in this case, it would be. And the terra nullius people should become part of white society on merit, because we're all starting from an equal base. And how arrogant of the terra nullius first peoples to devise a surreptitious plan to divide the invaders. Clearly divisive proposals like, uh, would you please at least recognise that we exist? What we will recognise is they're trying to split us.
Our proud energy companies keep telling us we could pay less for gas, for instance, if only certain state governments, and we know who they are, listener, would open up the gas they have locked up on specious grounds like it would destroy the environment when they know the environment should never come between a resource company and a bag of lovely, lovely money. And gas is the answer to climate change and less polluting than the coal and oil the same great companies also control, presumably because our state energy bodies were privatised to avoid vertical integration and generate, pun only slightly intended, the low prices we now enjoy through the super-efficient hand of the private sector on the great level playing field of world's best practice competition policy. Just a touch of bad luck, then, that this Global Energy Monitor report says liquefied natural gas is worse for the environment than coal, mainly through the methane emissions from its extraction. But then we can feel pretty secure because the proud energy companies all guarantee the environmental impacts of whatever they do will be minimal. And the sundry rubber stamp bodies appointed to conduct environmental impact studies into all these things always agree with them, proving the anti-progress, anti-true blue Aussie, anti-jobs environmental ratbags are 100% wrong. There's the difference. The bloody selfish environmentalists want everything while the responsible resource behemoths are prepared to compromise, like Woodside Emissions, the great resource behemoths. See, the Western Trublowazi government's Environment Protection Authority has misunderstood its role, unlike our esteemed EPA here in Victoria, and has this misguided attitude that an Environmental Protection Authority's role is environmental protection. Good grief! How could the delicate flower that is the economy perform its critical social duty if all these state bodies, which have no right to interfere in the marketplace anyway, had that attitude? And the Western Trublowazi EPA wants all resource projects to have zero carbon emissions. And Woodside Emissions has accused the government of secrecy over the policy. We must have an openness policy in all these matters. Uh, yes, yes, we agree here at 3CR. Uh, what are your total emissions? That is a matter of commercial confidentiality. No, no, I'm here to expose anti-business secrecy. Fair enough. And finally, we referred a couple of weeks ago to Big Supremo Scuttlebeam Morashson's declaration he had a long to-do list to fulfil his non-mandate, including his reverse mandate necessity to reform caring business class relations to offset the current massive bias in fair work, true blue Aussie, no longer work choices, just looks like it, toward the evil unions and lazy avaricious workers. Why, in some very rare cases, loopholes, the odd union is allowed to act like a union, but good news. Scuttlebem assured us this week his to-do list does not include increasing the dole. Why bother? After all, his Minister for Homelessness said homelessness is good and he'll do his best to perpetuate it, doing good. Yes, little Billy's short and ambition has a lot to answer for. Good afternoon. And good afternoon to Mr Kevin Healy and so good morning to him tomorrow at nine for his program, City Limits. Are you aware that if you have money in a superannuation fund, you most probably will be investing in nuclear weapons? The Medical Association for the Prevention of War, MAPW, says it's time to quit nukes.
This comes at the time of the historic nuclear weapons ban treaty. To date, 24 of the countries who voted for the ban have ratified towards the required total of at least 50. On Friday, I spoke with two activists involved in this campaign to pressure super funds to divest from these weapons, which could mean the end of the world as we know it. I'll let them introduce themselves. I'm Margaret Beavis. I should say Maggie Beavis, because there's two Margarets on this call. I'm with the Medical Association Prevention of War. We have set up the international campaign to abolish nuclear weapons back in 2006. So we have a keen interest in getting the world rid of nuclear weapons. For several years we had been thinking about a divestment campaign. We had a go about four years ago and found we needed to focus on other areas to try and get a treaty to the United Nations. Now that treaty has gone through the United Nations, we have returned to divestment and what was glorious for us was that a highly skilled professional by the name of Margaret Perrell, who's sitting next to me, came and said to us at the end of the last year, just as we were starting to think about winding this all up again, would you like some help? And since she's expert in many fields that we are not expert in, we were really delighted. And so this has really helped us launch the campaign. What are you expert in, Margaret? Are you an accountant? Are you a financial advisor? What's the situation for you? A little bit of everything. I have studied finance, accounting, law and statistics. And I have three master's degrees and a lot of experience in that field. I have also done a lot of work on superannuation, so I understand how superannuation funds work in terms of how they choose to invest in a particular company and so on. So it's from this this finance knowledge and finance experience that I come. I'm also very familiar with similar divestment work done on tobacco. There's a lady, a doctor and oncologist by the name of Bronwyn King, who over the past 10 years has managed to get 55% of the superannuation funds in Australia to divest of their tobacco portfolio. So I guess we are following in her steps. We've learned from what she has done. And so that's, that's where I come in, I guess. I don't have the medical knowledge. I don't have the knowledge of nuclear weapons and the work of ICANN, although I've been reading about it. And um, so I come in and provide that finance background. There are a great number of super funds, aren't there? How did you choose which ones you were going to focus on, or did you focus on the lot? There are about 180 super funds in Australia, and some of them are very small. And actually, the government in Australia is trying to get more rationalisation in superannuation funds. And every few months, there are probably a merger or takeover of smaller funds by some of the larger funds. The superannuation funds in Australia are classified as either a corporate superannuation fund, an industry fund, a public sector fund or a retail fund, and then, of course, we have the small funds, which we call the self-managed super funds, the SNSF. By far, in terms of size, the industry funds are the largest funds, for example, Australian Super is by far the largest superannuation fund in Australia. So initially, our research has focused on the large industry super funds. There are, I think, about 30 industry super funds, but there are about, I think, 15 really large ones, and we've focused on, on those. So we've actually looked at what their investment policy is and whether they actually 
screen out various factors such as nuclear weapons, tobacco, and so on. But, of, of course, we're focusing on, on nuclear weapons. And what we have found out is that none of the large industry super funds in Australia screen out nuclear weapons. And there's another organization called Don't Bank on the Bomb, and according to them, only two superannuation funds in Australia screen out nuclear weapons. So if you think two out of 180, that's a very, very small number. So by and large, we could say that almost all Australians are likely to be investing in nuclear weapons, and probably without their knowledge. Margie, were you surprised or horrified when you found this out? Uh, Probably both. (laughs) (laughs) I think what startles you is when they... A lot of super funds will have in their ethical portfolio that they screen out controversial weapons. And astonishingly, nuclear weapons, in almost all cases, not quite all, but most cases by far, are not regarded as controversial weapons, which is sort of astounding piece of language distortion in my view. Anyway, with this new nuclear weapons ban treaty, they clearly are controversial weapons. So not only are we looking at focusing on the superannuation companies here in Australia, and people might be interested to know that the two good ones that we think are terrific are um, Future Super and Australian Ethical. But we're also focusing on what are called the index setters, who are the people who determine which investments are classified in which sense. So we're approaching uh, organisations like MSCI who set the... They, they cluster investments that the superannuation companies then choose to buy. So we're focusing on them and saying, look, it's ridiculous. You need to get nuclear weapons out of your portfolios as a whole, but they're absolutely controversial. It should be a complete no-brainer first step to get them out of your controversial weapons portfolio. What does the Nuclear Weapon Ban Treaty say about these people Um, investing? It's very clear that um, any assistance to nuclear weapons production or deployment is prohibited under the ban, and so once this comes into force under international law, assisting a nuclear weapons company by providing funds will be illegal. Does it make a difference that Australia hasn't signed or ratified this ban treaty? The treaty will come into force when we've got 50 signatures and ratifications, in other words, passing through the parliament. With the current government, it would be highly unlikely uh, that it would sign because it's been, for the last few years, very much doing what the US proposes and actively undermining this treaty. The treaty is still on track to get 50 signatures in the usual amount of time it takes these sort of treaties to do so, which usually sort of two or three years. So in terms of becoming international law, no, it doesn't matter that Australia doesn't sign. However, as a matter of, for Australians, it's very significant that we don't sign because really Australian governments have to choose whether they actually support nuclear weapons and think they're a good idea or they support nuclear disarmament. And at the moment, it's very clear that the current government is pro-nuclear weapons and that's, I mean, it would be appalling if you thought they were pro-chemical weapons or biological weapons, yet nuclear weapons are worse than both of those. It's not the end of the world, although I agree with what Margie has just said. Let, let, me, let me explain something to you. Super, there are many superannuation funds in Australia at the moment who provide what we would call an ethical option or a socially aware option. Um, in other words, if, if, you're, if you're an ethical investor and you actually want to avoid a lot of those bad things around, that are around, you would choose an ethical option in a situation fund. 
And for example, let's talk about HESTA. HESTA has an ethical option. Australian super has an ethical option. So then if we look at those ethical options, what are the things that they, they screen out? They screen out tobacco, they screen out alcohol or prostitution activities, gambling activities, and so on. And they screen out what we call controversial weapons. But then they define controversial weapons as landmines, and biological weapons, chemical weapons, and some other things. And at the moment, they are not including nuclear weapons because the international treaty is not in force in international law. Once the treaty does become international law, does get in, into force, then the index setters and Australian funds like Subanation, like HESTA, like Australian Super, who are currently um, screening out controversial weapons, nuclear weapons will then be included in that definition because there is an international treaty. Well, That's where the importance of the international treaty lies well. Is that what, what the funds managers tell you? We have done research. We have looked at their product disclosure statement. We have looked at their annual reports, at their websites. So it's not only what they tell us, it's what we have, we have found out as well. And we have, we have met with representatives of MSCI, that's Morgan Stanley, to ask them why aren't they including nuclear weapons as a controversial weapon in their index. And they have indicated to us that well, it is not, the, the treaty is not enforced yet. Once the treaty is enforced, that will change. Your comments on that, Margie? Yes, I think it's disappointing that they, when, when these weapons are so clearly incredibly dangerous, that they are still investing. But I think we have to understand that their principles of investment for exclusions in the ethical funds are often guided by United Nations treaties. And I think with the superannuation funds, we need also to make them understand that there are very good reasons for them to divest for financial reasons. These companies can be very mobile. They'll go up and down. Um, depending on whether sort of Donald Trump decides that he's pro-nuclear weapons or anti-nuclear weapons, whatever, with the various machinations in North Korea, certainly these stocks have gone up and down quite dramatically. So I think we're trying to persuade them on ethical grounds, but we will also use the, the, the financial grounds that divesting. It's a very, very small part of their portfolios and financially may lead to sort of not affect their returns at all anyway. So that we're not... We're trying to meet them on financial grounds as well as on ethical grounds. And that's a very good point that Margie has made. There's the financial argument. There's a lot of research being done in that area. And I've recently um, had a discussion with UBS, which is a, one of the largest investment banks in the world. And they have shown that ethical portfolios perform better than non-ethical portfolios. So in other words, by removing some of those nasties, you tend to have less volatility in your portfolio and you perform better. There's an organization in Australia called the Responsible Investment Association of, of Australia, led by Simon O'Connor. And again, responsible investment, I guess the aim of responsible investment is to invest responsibly, hence one aspect of that is screening out those, those nasties. And ethical investment is on the increase in Australia. More and more funds and people are aware of the ethical issues and prefer 
to invest in an ethical manner. So there is a natural sort of growth in that space. But the key challenge that we still have is without that international treaty, a lot of superannuation funds through their index investing, through their passive investments, are still investing in nuclear weapons. So there's still a, a big job for us to do to, I guess, convince superannuation funds that this needs to change. Do you have an idea of how much money is involved in these companies in the super funds and who the companies are? We certainly know who the companies are, and there's a list of perhaps 20 or 30 companies. Yes. I can't remember exactly, yes. so it's not a very large number. And our estimation is, about, is that about 15 to 16 billion Australian dollars is currently invested in nuclear weapons companies. And what percentage would that be? To get the percentage, the majority of nuclear weapons manufacturers would sit in the sector that we call international shares. And international shares tend to make up about you know, 20 to 25% of portfolios. Like if you look at a balanced fund, international shares is about 25%. And of the international shares, around 2.5% of those are nuclear weapons companies. So if you put all those numbers together, it works out at about half a percent. So it's a very, very small proportion of the portfolios. But, but it's still a very large number. Mm -hmm. I mean, 16 billion. Imagine what you could do with 16 billion instead of pouring that into nuclear weapons companies. It's a lot of money. How far into the campaign are you? At the moment, we're setting it up in terms of establishing materials, a presentation, doing our research, understanding our background before we launch into meeting with superannuation funds. We have um, had discussions, some preliminary discussions, sort of get some frameworks, and certainly they're interested in what we're doing. And we've also had sort of some support from some of the ethical managers. And we also met with Simon O'Connor, mentioned earlier, who's involved in responsible investing in Australia. So, so far, the response has been encouraging, but we hope to launch this campaign fairly soon, you know, probably in a month or two, once we've got all our materials and presentations together. Would you like to add to that, Margaret? I think we should also mention that we managed to get a little bit of money to do this work. Yes, and so got a, might want to a generous grant from the Jesse Street Trust, which is a philanthropic group who uh, give money each year on nuclear weapons issues, and we're very grateful for their support. It's really uh, been a tremendous boom to getting this campaign better resourced and means we can do some further research. We're going to uh, do a survey looking at what percentage of the Australian population understand that their superannuation may be funding nuclear weapons and also how they feel about that and that will be useful information to have also to present to the superannuation companies. I'm sure most people don't know, do they? No, no clue. Right. And in fact, if any of your listeners want to start to help us, um, all they need to do, it's very simple, is to send an email to their superannuation fund saying, do you invest in, does your fund invest in nuclear weapons and what is your policy on nuclear weapons? And this those two questions are extremely helpful because a lot of the fund managers don't really consciously appreciate that they are also investing in nuclear weapons. And it's really a matter of raising the issue with fund managers as much as anything to make them think about what they're doing and what the money is going towards. And that will, that will also help our campaign a great deal. And what's the situation with the, the, the treaty at the moment? We're working hard on entry into force. We have 24 nations signed up. We've just had Kazakhstan join last week. We need 50, and there certainly is that number 
uh, with legislation and various processes in the pipeline. It's a matter now of getting it through each parliament, getting it... It's, it's quite... Each, as you can imagine, each country has its own way of passing laws and passing legislation, so it's time-consuming, but we're on track. And what about the Australian government? You have not, no great joy there? We're continuing to lobby them. We've just about uh, ICANN, the International Campaign to Abolish Nuclear Weapons here in Australia, we're just about to launch an 80-page report that will highlight all the reasons why Australia needs to sign this treaty. It's a very clear, very comprehensive document, so for people who say give this reason or that reason why we shouldn't sign, this 80-page this report really covers all the angles and also demonstrates the breadth of support we have from church groups, from unions, from civil society, from leaders in society, and really the case is very clear-cut and we're looking forward to launching that report um, in August. And I'm thinking that in the future it's not only the super funds you could be targeting, but other financial institutions. That's a very good point, Jan. Banks lend money to companies, and of course banks lend money to nuclear weapons companies, and Australian banks are no different. So yes, certainly the financing from a debt perspective as provided by the banks, that is another target down the track. And another company that would be investing in nuclear weapons companies are insurance companies. So that's another target. But initially, we are focusing on superannuation funds in Australia. If your listeners are interested, the two banks that have no ties to nuclear weapons are Bendigo Bank and Bank Australia. The banks that we know that are particularly problematic are Westpac, ANZ, Commonwealth Bank, Macquarie, and sadly, our own future fund, which is the investment for superannuation for public servants. Certainly, it's worth, if you're with any of those banks, it's really worth emailing them and just giving them a little bit of a prod and saying, do you invest in nuclear weapons? How much do you invest in nuclear weapons? And what is your policy on nuclear weapons companies? And after they've done those things, they can keep tabs on what's happening by going to your webpage. Yes, MAPW, which is www.mapw.org.au, certainly we'll be tracking this campaign there and probably we'll have a section on that website devoted to the campaign. So, yes, people are very welcome to look at that and look at our other campaigns, which currently include trying to stop Australia joining uh, the US in war on Iran and also trying to stop it selling weapons to the Saudi Arabian government who are blockading Yemen. Any final words, Margaret? Yes, actually, uh, uh, to provide a good summary, um, superannuation funds, I mean, according to our research, they exclude companies involved in um, weapons for the following reasons. The first reason is compliance with international and national um, legislation. So when this treaty comes into place, that's going to be a real powerful force. The second reason that they choose is in response to pressure from civil society and the media and to meet client demands and for their own ethical convictions. So, for example, um, a lot of religious funds, they do have an option where they do exclude, you know, a lot of, of these nasties that's for their own ethical convictions. So I guess what we can do here is to get people to pressure the superannuation funds, to get the media to help us, to make people aware of this issue so that down the track superannuation funds will meet the demands of their clients and the demands of the people 
If people go to their supplier nation funds and say, I don't want my money going into nuclear weapons companies, eventually the supplier nation funds will listen. Thank you, Chibos. Thanks a lot, Jen. Thank you. I've been speaking with Dr. Margie Beavis and Margaret Perrell about the campaign to rid superannuation funds of investing in nuclear weapons. Uh, Good luck to them. I'm sure they've got it all worked out, what they're going to do in the future, and we hope that it's very successful. But do have a look at MAPW's website. They've got a lot of information there about what you can be doing as well to assist. Hello, I am Gabriel Gatte. 3CR is like a souffle, a challenge to make, but it can just go higher and higher and higher. Support 3CR. For the program two weeks ago, Kate Lewis, a member of the Australian Western Sahara Association, and myself rang Western Sahara to speak with Nasser El Khalidi, a journalist from Equip Media, a grassroots organisation working to expose human rights abuses in their country by the occupying forces of Morocco, and she was facing many years in jail for her work. As Nasser pointed out in the interview, She had a day in court and the decision of the judge would be released on the 9th of July. And it was good news. This morning I spoke with Kamal Fidel, the Polisario Front representative for Australia and New Zealand. Kamal, what actually did the judge decide in her case? Well, this is not your normal court like a court in, in Australia. This is Moroccan legal system which is not known for its uh, transparency or fairness. It's like a, a kangaroo port. And, and what he did, he just fined uh, Nezhar. And he, he's just uh, implementing instructions that he, he's getting from uh, the political system, the Mahzen, to uh, threaten and to uh, silence and to oppress Sahrawis. I think he decided to find Nezhar symbolic amount of money about for uh, 400 euros when they have uh, they found nothing to do you know that this, she's done wrong yes but this is only one case others have gone to jail for similar so-called crimes for many many yes. years and are still in jail that's true there's no consistency or, or in, in Moroccan ways and in this particular case because of the uh, attention it drew from uh, international human rights organizations and from the media they were a bit careful you know in this one but we cannot rule out that they might do something else to her in the future jail her or torture her or do anything untoward a life sentence in that sense because of the international pressure. Can you just reiterate what she was charged with? I think she was charged with working as a journalist without permission. 
she was working as a, a blogger or, or someone who, you know, tries to shed light on what's going on in, in, in the express their, their, their opinion, uh, their freedom of expression. She's not like a paid journalist. She's just reporting like anyone about what's happening around here. It's not a crime and it's not a violation of any law. And in any case, let's start from the basics. Morocco has no right to be in Western Sahara and has no right to try Sahrawis in the in Moroccan courts. We don't recognize and Nesha doesn't or any other Sahrawi the Moroccan legal system. It shouldn't be there. It's you know, like if, if I come into your home and start judging you or accusing you of doing something in your own home, maybe uh, reporting you to the police or something about moving the furniture in a way you like. This is the basic thing. It's an illegal presence of Morocco. They should not be trying people. They should not be silencing people or oppressing them. Talk a little bit more about the international support that came for this case. It was really a tremendous support. Organizations such as Amnesty International, quite a few lawyers from Spain and Scandinavia, for example, Norway, tried to attend a trial and they were turned back. And uh, there were a lot of, uh, you know, solidarity groups, uh, like in the UK, for example, who were writing letters and to United Nations and to the Moroccan government, trying to, you know, talk about this case and put pressure on Morocco. And it, it did work, finally. And that's very, uh, a very good sign that, you know, international support, uh, solidarity is, is very important does make an impact and, and it's, it's vital for cases like this and the absolute monarchy in, in Morocco, the, the regime scared of this kind of attention and they will be very careful in doing what, something wrong to someone like Nezha. The organisation she is a part of is called Equip Media. Are there other members of that group in jail at the moment for similar charges? Yes, there are, and this organization is, is targeted because the one thing that the Moroccan regime is scared of and does not want to happen is people talking about the issue. Their main aim and strategy is to keep Western Sahara case out of sight, out of mind, forgotten with the uh, hope that with time the international community will forget about it and the Sahrawis get tired or just wither away, you know, and that it will be finished and Morocco will just take over and enjoy the resources and, and Western Sahara. That's the, the, the aim. That's why they don't let independent observers or media to come into Western Sahara. That's why they don't tolerate any Sahrawi reporting on the abuses uh, or on demonstrations by Sahrawis. This is an organization that they do hate and they will target all the time.
No, she has a fine of the equivalent of 400 euros. She doesn't have a job. How is she going to pay it? (laughs) And what are the consequences if she doesn't pay it? I think what she will do is, as usual, you know, there is a lot of solidarity and support amongst the Saharawis in the occupied area. They will help her. But I think she was uh, talking to her lawyer, and I haven't got an update on what happened, whether she has to pay it or whether she could get away without paying it. But in in any case, she's going to be, from now on, under Moroccan supervision, and they will target her all the time. So I would not be surprised if they arrest her again. It must also have an impact on the other people who are also trying to get the truth out to know that they're being watched all the time too. And Oh, of course. And that, that's the aim, mm. is to scare people, to threaten them. They're very brave people. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. Uh, and, they, you know, their equipments get confiscated, they get beaten, they get threatened, they, they have a job, they get sacked. They keep going. Because they believe in this issue, they believe in the cause, and it's, that it's just, and that it's their land, and that it's their, their country, that the fate of their people. I have nothing but admiration to these people who are under occupation, and Morocco is a brutal regime, and despite all the, the odds, they continue to defy it, to defy this regime. Uh, and to put themselves into uh, very serious risk uh, in order to shed light on on their cause and demand their rights. And, of course, the treatment that these journalists get is just a mirror of what happens on the ground to all the citizens. That's right. Uh, And it's not something new. Uh, We have been in this situation for 43 years. Thousands of Sahrawis were disappeared. They were just kidnapped and put into prison for, you know, around 20 years. A lot of them died. For many years, Morocco just denied their existence. But, again, human rights organizations continue to talk about them. Other Sahrawis outside of Morocco continued to, to talk about them. Uh, and the pressure continued until Morocco accepted that they some of them still alive, and released them. Uh, And it's just a a, a tragic story. It's a kind of a a genocide that has continued for 44 years. But the international community is not, you know, treating this issue seriously. It's not doing much about it. It's a very simple issue that can be resolved with a little bit of pressure on Morocco. But unfortunately, because there are no immediate interests of superpowers in the area, and because of Morocco's friendship with, for example, France, this issue continues. But, you know, the victims are the Sahrawis, innocent Sahrawis, who were, most of them, thrown out of their own, own homeland, living in refugee camps in very difficult conditions, like these days as we speak. Temperature there is over 50 degrees, uh, and they suffer. And it's not like for one day or one month or one year. This is 44 years of suffering. It is time that this issue is resolved. It is time. It is resolved now.
and this is what we've been saying before you know another war is starts or before something else happens resolves this issue like what happened in East Timor it's a very similar issue or you know elsewhere it's a decolonization issue and it needs to be resolved immediately the main stumbling block it seems is France when they vote it's the one that supports Morocco what role do they have in Morocco now well in, in some French minds Morocco is still like a colony of France they consider it their sphere of influence they invest in Morocco they control Morocco their interests are involved and most of French political leaders have been given properties by the Moroccan regime and they live comfortable life when they come to Morocco they spend their holidays there uh, of course they were not the colonial power in Western Sahara it was a Spanish colony but again, but again Spain has a responsibility which has, it has not fulfilled here and we have to say that but the French being a, a member of the Security Council they're not using that membership with responsibility and, and taking it seriously they use it to defend Morocco Morocco, that is an absolute monarchy uh, that, you know, abuses human rights, violates international law. Yet the French, who all the time remind us that they are, you know, a country that respects human rights and international law, is doing the contrary here in this case. It's defending a regime, you know, that kills innocent people, puts them in jail, occupies other people's land uses aggression, uses war to uh, occupy other people's uh, countries. And they're they doing really something terrible here in, in Western Sahara. Uh, and they seem to get away with it. Is this symptomatic of what France does to the former colonies in Western Africa? It is. And we have also to, to remember that France still occupies a territory which is not far from Australia here in, in New Caledonia. But France's colonial history is uh, really bad. When it, France was forced to leave Africa, it always continued to exploit Africa. Either left people ruling there, they controlled from Paris, or they left a system of, uh, you know, using French money, doing deals with African countries which favors France, and they have this colonial attitude. They think they, they, they continue to be the masters in Africa, and that's not acceptable anymore. People are getting, becoming more aware uh, of, of uh, France's terrible role in exploitation, uh, in human rights abuses, and in supporting regimes that are uh, abusing human rights and uh, are corrupt in, in Africa. It is uh, something that uh, the, the French have been doing and continue to do even today. Any final words? Well, just to thank you for always talking about this issue, which is uh, not known in Australia. You know, not many people are kind and brave to talk about it your radio station and your interest uh, is so much appreciated and we are very grateful to you and to your efforts. Thank you very much. 
And that's Kamal Fidel, who's the Polistario Front representative in Australia and New Zealand. And it's a shame that the rest of the media doesn't pick up on this issue instead of um, ignoring it for all those years where the people are suffering, not only in their home country, Western Sahara, but in the refugee camps out in the desert in the west of Algeria. It will be worth the effort to get to Darwin from the 2nd to the 4th of August for the Independent and Peaceful Australia Network's National Conference. Australia at the Crossroads. Time for an independent foreign policy. Held under the ominous shadow of US-China contention and US-Australia military exercises for war on China, discussion and speakers will address the social and economic cost of militarism to Australia, the impact of militarism on the environment and the dangers posed to our peace and security by stationing US troops in Darwin. For more details, head to the Independent and Peaceful Australia Network's website at ipan.org.au. IPAN is a 3CR supporter. At this moment, the indigenous people of Nevea Vizcaya in Luzon, the Philippines, have set up a barricade against Australian mining company Oceana Gold's gold mine. They believe the stoppage of the huge mine is urgent as it threatens Nevea Vizcaya's landscape that form an important biodiversity corridor, watershed, haven and agroforestry hub. The people have called for international support and part of that response was a rally that was held here in Melbourne last week outside Oceania Gold's headquarters at 357 Collins Street here in the city. Activist Kevin Bracken knows well the ways of Oceania Gold, being one of many who campaigned to rid El Salvador of the company. Kevin, the reason for this renewed activity at the mine is because of the recent expiry of the mine's 25-year financial and technical assistance agreement. But Oceania Gold claims it can now continue. Why is this the case? What happened is that the lease expired on the 20th of June this year, a 25-year lease. It was a um, done under the Philippines New Mining Act. And that under that act, every, every 25 years it had to be renewed. So the day was, for the renewal was up there. It applied to the Department of um, Environment and Natural Resources to ha- renew the mine for another 25 years. But the local governor of the Nevea Vizcaya has shut the mine down. He said he wants the mine shut down. And he is in charge of, the, of that local area and the local police. And there's been a community picket for the last probably eight or nine days at the mine to stop anything from coming in and out. So it's actually operating illegally now. What Oceana Gold's done is that they've challenged them in a local court in um, in the Philippines. So they're saying that the um, government's the the federal government has got the overall right to say whether they've got a mine or not. It hasn't been signed, and it's up to the president to today whether he signs it or not. Now we hear that he's actually sent the application back because it says it's not fulfilled. And there's a number of things which were meant to be filled out in the in the um, agreement which weren't fulfilled, which is the, the right to water. Uh, the right to labour standards, the right to a secure environment, which weren't fulfilled by Oceana Gold. 
and that's why the, why the local uh, governor in Nevada Vizcaya has called for it to be closed down. Just explain, Kevin, what that last 25 years has meant for the people in the area. The actual environmental law and the mining law says it, it's got to be done with the permission of the people. A lot of people were forced out of their homes by armed guards. There was no compensation and it was against the will of the people and that's why the community pickets on there now. So for a start, it didn't have the consent of the, of the local people. It's also meant to have involvement from them and some benefits for the local people too. And what happened, the mine didn't start producing until the end of 2012. And under the agreement, their first five years of production, they don't pay any tax at all. So they paid no tax to the federal government. Now they've called out another clause in that agreement which says they have another two-year holiday from paying any tax at all. And why it's important is because it's a big citrus-growing area downstream of the water supply from here. And that area, just the um, agricultural produce, contributes about 1.8 of the GDP to the Philippines government. The complete benefits of mining from 2012 to 2016 have averaged at 0.65% of the GDP. So just the local production by far out, and that's all the mining, not just this mine, far outweighs any benefit that the Philippines people are getting out of their of the mining operations that are being performed there. What's it done to the environment? Well, there's high levels of um, lead, manganese, cyanide, which are all well above the level that's meant to be for the water that's used for irrigation, and a lot of that water is used just for drinking and cooking purposes too. So it's also a watershed for the for the largest Kagan River, which is the largest river in uh, Luzon. I'd imagine the people over the years have been complaining and demonstrating against this mine. What's happened to them when they have done that? Well, there's been, as I said, there's been armed guards. I think last year some of the people who had to blockade it because the mine, they tried to expand the mine, the local people blockaded that. They were put on it, they called it red tagging. They get put on a list and what happens if you don't watch out for yourself, you know, you might go missing. Since the third day has been in government, 31,000 people have been assassinated by hit squads. Another 6,000 have been assassinated by the police. And there's not one person being charged with any of those murders. So the Human Rights Commission has just been heard last week. There's 47 members of the Human Rights Commission. The only country that condemned the Philippines was Iceland. Now I think there's a majority of the company of the countries which are on the Human Rights Commission, including Australia, which have, which have supported the um, Icelandic resolution to um, investigate the human rights record in the Philippines. Unfortunately, there's quite a number of countries that, that are still supporting Duterte. There is, and we, we supply... The Australian government supplies, I think, $30 million in arms for anti-terrorism reasons. And we, we just attended a conference in, in um, Hong Kong it was about uh, the International Committee on Human Rights in the Philippines. And I met in Hong Kong because a lot of the people who are in that committee no longer can go to the Philippines and have been banned by Duterte. But just in Malawi, the local sultan who was there of Malawi was at that conference and he said there was probably five ISIS people at the time before they bombed Malawi. He said they could have safely got them out of the place and you know, they could have got them out you know, and away from the people. They bombed the city. I think they killed a 1,000 people and there's still 30,000 people with no homes to live in since then. 
Now, what's also because the whole of Mindanao is in a, in a um, under martial law, there was a strike at one of the haciendas, and um, the two organisers there were told to go and give themselves up as communist insurgents, and they won't be killed. And then they told the other members of the, of the union to go and resign, and they'll be taken off off the list. And that's what happens. People are being killed with impunity there. So far from being a war on terror, this is a war about getting the right-wing agenda up so no one can oppose the, um, you know, a feudal system which is still being perpetuated in the Philippines. What can people outside the country do? Well, there is a petition, Jan, and I'll have to get the details for it. It's from Baltaris. You can sign on that, which asks for uh, calls on people to support the, the government of Nevada Vizcaya, have the mine closed down. So that'll be a great thing. The other thing is we had a protest last Tuesday at Oceana Gold, but there's another one on the 9th of August, and if, we could get, if people could arrive at that at 12 o'clock, that'll be fantastic. The address is 357 Collins Street in Melbourne. And I'm quite sure the activists won't get lost because there have been to so many demonstrations outside 357 Collins Street. That's right. This is a country who tried to sue El Salvador for $300 million for not giving a mining permit and actually it was a cause of um, the El Salvador government banning all metal mining in the country. So it's, I believe it's the first country in the world to ever do it. Are there concerns for the people who are on the barricade that they might be attacked by the military or for, by goons? Of course there is, and that's, that's what happens. I mean, the thing is you can protest in Australia and you haven't got... You haven't got the threat of being tapped on the shoulder and someone knocking you out of bed in the middle of the night and taking you away. But in the Philippines, you've got to take your hat off for them. As much you know, intimidation and threats and murders that have been happening over there, these people are still standing up for their rights. So they des- we deserve the support then because a lot of the decisions that are made for, that affect those people in those third world countries are made in the boardrooms and rooms of, in Collins Street there. And not only that, the fact that our military are in there. Our, our Australian, the SAS, I think they trade them in house to house combat. And it's ridiculous. It's just, it's not, the whole war on terror is a phony war. It's a self perpetuating war. And it's the perfect thing for any dictator to never be out of power because anyone who opposes you can just be declared a terrorist and they've got no rights at all. And you've got every right to kill them, to attack them anyway that they want to. And that's what's happened in the, police, in the um, Philippines too is that there's been a peace process going on. It was cancelled by Duterte Day shortly after he got in, in office, even though he said he was going to support the um, peace process. And that was about, you know, providing people with land, you know, so it doesn't remain a semi-feudal country. He's cancelled those peace talks, and now anyone who's they say is a people of the new members' army is, you know, can be killed at will. And the other thing, too, is you mentioned just before, is that, that any person from overseas who wants to come and witness what's happening are being prevented from going. That's right. A lot of people have stood up for human rights, have been um, prevented from going there. Sister Pat was one of them. She was actually in Hong Kong. But also what they've done is that the Philippines government has been going to Europe and saying that all these NGOs, NGOs like Migrante, Ibon Foundation, which have been operating for like 40 years, are communist fronts and don't give them any, any monetary support. So what they're trying to do, anyone who criticises or says anything about the Duterte, people from the Philippines government are going over to, the Europe, over to Europe especially and saying, don't fund these NGOs. So you're not going to get in there, are you? Well, I don't know. 
haven't tried. I haven't had my name put on the list yet. You know, the other names on there anyway. We have to stand up. I mean, we don't get assassinated in this country. At least we've got to support people you know, who have got the balls to stand up and look after their communities and want just the things that everyone wants, a decent life. Okay, so it's the 9th of August. 9th of August, 357 Collins Street. Thank you for all support you've given it too. Okay. All right, Kevin. Bye-bye. See you, Zanta. And that is Kevin Braggerton. If you'd like to sign that petition and get your friends to sign that petition as well, it's on change.org and it's called Cancel Oceana Gold's Contract Now. So that's change.org, Cancel Oceana Gold's Contract Now. And the 9th of August... 357 Collins Street in the city at 12 o'clock. Don't panic, there is a planet B. Come along to a sparkling night of progressive comedy at Greenleaf Weekly's annual comedy debate. Join Masters of Ceremonies, Rod Quantock with Sean Bedlam, Duff, Fiona Scott Norman, Hellchild, Kirsty Mack, and Tom Tanuki. Tickets are $50 Solidarity, $30 Regular, $22 Low Waged and $12 Concession. There'll be a bar and the opportunity to buy a delicious dinner. Friday the 26th of July, 6.30pm at the Brunswick Town Hall. Don't panic, there is a Planet B, a fundraiser for the radical newspaper Green Left Weekly. Bookings are essential, phone 9639 8622 or go to trybooking.com forward slash bdhtx. Green Left Weekly is a 3CR supporter. Following on from the previous interview with Dr. Margie Beavis, and Margaret Perrell regarding the campaign to pressure superannuation funds to divest from companies making and distributing nuclear weapons. We turn now to the wider anti-nuclear movement. In the last couple of years, a new group, Australians for Nuclear Disarmament, has been active, following in the footsteps of groups such as PND, Pax Christi, Morm, Foe and others. Dr Carol Week is a member of the group and Carol, this comes at a particular time in history. Well, as you say, there have been a lot and, and it's, it's, it could be very discouraging that there have been so many, some of which have disappeared and that we're still going. But on the other hand, we have to keep going. So Australians for Nuclear Disarmament actually arose from a group that was set up by Pax Christie and some people in the union movement during the centenary celebrations or otherwise for the Great War, the World War One, which was just over. So at the end of the war, it was no longer the centenary, but the group was still going. And the treaty for nuclear disarmament had just been passed. So this organization was set up to keep working for the Treaty on the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons, which had just been passed in the UN. There have been many others, and I'm not really, I'll say, with all, all the names, but the, I belong to a very strong one, which has been going for a long time, which I originally joined in England, 
called Medical Association for Prevention of War. I think it's been going, getting on for 30 years in Australia. It got going when the anti-nuclear movement was quite strong in Australia in the 70s or 80s, I think. But I'm a member of the Medical Association for Prevention of War, and Medical Association for Prevention of War gave rise to ICANN, the International Campaign for the Abolition of Nuclear Weapons. So that was started in Melbourne, but it went on to become a group of international NGOs and other civil society activists. And we passed, managed to get this treaty, the Treaty for the, on the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons, through the United Nations in 2017. And for that, we were later awarded the Nobel Peace Prize. Since the end of the centenary of the Great War, our task has been to make sure that Australia eventually signs on to this treaty. Australia didn't sign on to the treaty, and in fact has worked against it to, to, to some extent. The, the majority of the states of the United Nations did vote for it, and we think Australia should be among them. You're running up against a bit of a brick wall with this government, aren't you? Because we're so up supporting the United States, and none of the nuclear power nations are supporting this ban. No, absolutely. They never supported it. And, and Australia, which rides on the coattails of the United States, which is one of the major members, yes, we are up against a brick wall, but it's, it's a, a brick wall that we're beginning to know very well and we keep banging our heads against it. And I think we're all fairly determined to keep on. Does your group, the Australians for Nuclear Disarmament, uh-huh. work... Does it work in with other groups, similar groups overseas, or are you just concentrating no, on Australia? No, this, this is, we are really a very small group of people, and, and we haven't really got our feet on the ground yet. We've, we've got a logo, and we have, on two occasions, run an event to celebrate Hiroshima Day. Yes. And, and that's really the, all we've done in the about two years that we've been an organisation. So we're, we're really hardly an organisation. We're a group. And several of us probably belong to other peace groups. As I said before, Pax Christie was one of the founding members of this group. And what are you doing on Hiroshima Day this year? On Hiroshima Day, we're running an event called Hiroshima Never Again, which is going to be held in Black Rock Civic Hall on Hiroshima Day, which is the 6th of August. Would you like me to give you details about who's speaking and what what we're going to do? Yes. Well, we've got three speakers, and we're also going to be launch of a new ICANN Australia report about why it is that we feel very firmly that Australia should join, join the treaty. It's an ICANN report, not an AND report, but it will be launched at this event. So the speakers will be Dimity Hawkins, who has been working away with us in MAPW as long as I can remember on the abolition of nuclear weapons, and she's a wonderful woman and has recently been awarded an AM for her work in this area. And she was a part of the board of ICANN at the time they won the Nobel Peace Prize. The other speakers are J.D. Mittman and Hiromi Ikeda. J.D. Mittman is a manager of public galleries around Victoria, 
But in particular, he developed and toured an award-winning winning art exhibition called Black Mist Burnt Country, which was about the testing of the bomb at Maralinga. And, and it had given rise to various artworks. So the, the exhibition was presented under that title. Hiromi Ikeda is a social work postgraduate student at Melbourne University, and she grew up in the city of Kure, which is close to Hiroshima, and members of her family were affected by the bomb, and some of them can remember seeing the cloud beyond the mountains on the day that the explosion occurred. It's so important to keep those memories alive, isn't it? It is absolutely, yes. And the city of Hiroshima has dedicated its life, really, to, to keeping the memory alive itself. It's a very noble effort, and they, they must be one of the strongest organizations in the world, really. But the mayor, mayor of Hiroshima recently was at a meeting with Mayors for Peace, which is a worldwide organization, and the World Parliament of Religions. And he said, which I think was a very strong thing, that he said nuclear weapons promote the culture of ultimate violence, claiming implicitly that the pursuit of security by one state can rightfully place the right to existence of all further generations at risk. And I think that was a very strong statement and very well worth thinking of. It is an international problem. Everybody's got to cooperate on this. Yes. Nuclear weapons aren't just another weapon, are they? They're not just another weapon at all, no. They have this very long-term future in terms of radiation, but also people have done research into what the effects of the bomb would be in, in directly on, on food production and things because it would produce an enormous cloud over the world which would lead to a nuclear famine. And large countries around the world would really not be able to produce enough food to keep themselves alive. What is known about the nuclear-powered nations at this moment? There's no atmospheric testing allowed any longer but are these weapons still being tested i think they are i'm afraid i don't really know the details but i think we do we do know that they are because they're certainly being produced and they couldn't be produced if they weren't tested i mean there must be some testing if if you're still making and inventing new ones all the time the number has decreased minimally in the last few years but on the other hand the bombs are getting stronger and so that maybe the power of the bombs has, hasn't decreased as much as the numbers of individual weapons. But there are still somewhere between 14 and 15,000 nuclear weapons in existence in the world. Okay, we'll just give that address again for the, the meeting on the, the 6th of August. It's at Black Rock Civic Hall, which is on the corner of Balkan Road and College Grove in Black Rock. And it's the 6th of August, the doors open at 7 and it will begin at 7.30. Okay, thanks Carol. Okay, thank you very much Jan. And it's Dr Carol Wigg, who's a member of Australians for Nuclear Disarmament and also a member of the Medical Association for the Prevention of War and I would imagine I can as well, International Campaign Against Nuclear Weapons. Very busy people. If you need to, if you'd like to go to that, you need to book. There is a booking through Try Booking, and it's um, booking for Hiroshima Never Again. 
through try booking. This is 3CR and the time is 10 minutes past 5 o'clock. It's not too late to donate. It's not too late to donate. It's not too late to donate to 3CR Radiothon. 94198377 or check our website 3cr.org.au On the line now is Dr Tim Anderson. I want you to talk about Syria. All the hoo-ha about Iran over the last couple of weeks has sort of pushed Syria right to the background of what's happening in the world. What are you finding out there at the moment? Well, of course, all the hoo-ha about Iran is precisely because Iran is the senior partner in an alliance which includes Palestine, Lebanon, and the Lebanese resistance, Syria, Iraq, and to some extent Yemen. And, and that's really why Israel and Washington are so upset about Iran. One, that Iran is a, a big independent state, but two, that it has direct, gives direct material support to the resistance in Palestine, Lebanon, Syria and Iraq. That's at the root of all of the claims about Iraq, uh, Iran sorry, supporting terrorism means that Iran is supporting the resistance in Palestine and Syria and Iraq and, and Lebanon, basically. That's, that's the obsession with Iran in, in a nutshell, basically. I, Iran is the senior partner in the axis of resistance to Zionism and colonialism in the region. And what is the situation in Syria at the moment in different parts, particularly in the north? So the north and the east still have significant terrorist problems, serious terrorist problems, because... There's an occupying Turkish army and an occupying U.S. army protecting those areas, basically, and giving safe haven to the remnants of Daesh, to Jabhat al-Nusra, what was originally official al-Qaeda group in Syria in the north, and some other Turkish-backed jihadist groups which are engaged in some infighting at the moment. And then, of course, we've got what was a Kurdish proxy but is now something rather different called the so-called Syrian Democratic Forces, another U.S. proxy, which is, in practice, um, some separatist Kurds from Syria and Turkey, because, remember, the Turkish separatists are much bigger than the Syrian separatists, much bigger group, and also the remnants of the jihadist groups that have been um, been smashed in other parts of Syria. So there's a problem because also the occupation is sitting, particularly in the northeast and in the east, sitting on Syria's, uh, a fair bit of Syria's oil, and its wheat fields, and to some extent in Italy, but also in the northwest. So the economic siege of Syria is being aggravated by these terrorist problems. And the terrorism in the northwest in Idlib, which is directly linked to Turkey, is more intransigent than it was in the Isguto or in the south or in some of the other parts of Syria because, one, it has that direct link to the Turkish army. The Turkish army is supplying it and giving it with hardware reinforcements and so on. And two, there are more experienced jihadists, that is to say fighters who have battle experience from Chechnya and from the, the Balkans and other, other parts. They're, they're much more experienced fighters and commanders than they were and better supplied than they were in, in the other parts of Syria. And how serious are these conflicts in the northern regions for the whole of Syria? I mean, it's years and years of, of war now. 
how are the people getting on? Well, in the other parts of um, Syria, very well. But you've got to remember that the occupation of Idlib and, to some extent, parts of um, of uh, northern Hama, it's not just that those areas are affected. If they aren't trying to roll back those areas um, controlled by the jihadists, they're being hit by artillery and drones and terrorist bombings, uh, all the surrounding areas. That means Hama uh, in the south, um, Aleppo uh, and Aleppo city and countryside in the east and Latakia in the, in the west. So you've got significant parts of Syria that are still being under fire, directly under fire from those groups, basically. The rest of Syria, apart from the east is um, and the northeast, is very peaceful. Damascus, for example, these days, since this time last year, is very peaceful. Not even any car bombings, nothing, nothing going on there. There was a report of a car bombing before I was there. I was there in, in Damascus for about three weeks in May, and there was a report of a car bomb. It wasn't a car bomb, it was some tank gas bottle that went off in a car, you know. So it's very peaceful there and most of the south and Homs and um, and most of the coast except those areas up close to Idlib. So it's, it's, it's pretty much life as usual there except that every day Syrian soldiers are being killed. They're even just containing that threat there, they're still being killed because I said Turkey is now very deeply engaged in Idlib and also in the north of Aleppo. There's, remember, we've got some other more complicated scenarios in the north where Turkey is occupying parts of northern Syria and backing jihadist groups there. And there is also a separate conflict going on with some Kurdish groups in northern Syria which are not aligned with the U.S. anymore because the U.S. didn't help them in the Afrin area in northern Aleppo. They have some agreements with the Syrian army, basically, um, which is sort of a reality force on them by the fact that they, they, know, they knew that the Americans were... Well, they found that the Americans abandoned them when, when the Turks sent in their jihadists against the Kurds there. So there is a type of agreement with the, with the Syrian army now there. But even though when the Turkish-backed forces came into Afrin, the Kurdish forces didn't want the Syrian army to come in at that stage, but the local residents did because they knew that... the the Kurdish militia couldn't repel Turkish, mili Turkish military and, and the groups of the Turkish military back. So there's a more complicated scenario with one group of Kurds in northern Syria more or less aligned with the, with the Syrian government and the others more to the northeast still basically trying their chances with uh, backing from the US. Can you think of other conflicts in the recent past that have been so complicated by so many issues in so many countries and so many militias? Well, Iraq was and is complicated too, but I think it's fair to say now that the war against Syria, which is still absurdly called a civil war by most of the Western media, and if you look up Wikipedia, they'll call it a civil war, it's the most internationalised conflict of the 21st century, without a doubt, because, one, you have occupying armies from Israel in the south. Remember, Israel occupies a substantial part of Syrian territory. Turkey in the north and the US in the south and the east and then you have dozens of jihadist groups still, but dominated by those big al-Qaeda groups, Daesh and, and Jabhat al-Nusra. And the fighters for those groups, the mercenaries and the, and the religious fanatics that have come to those groups to establish a caliphate, they've come from more than 80 countries. Uh, just recently, the German media was talking about they had identified more than a 1,000 German jihadists in Syria and Iraq, mainly Syria, and they're mainly talking about members of Daesh, ISIS, 160 which they 
were totally missing, they believed were dead, over 300 of which had come back to Germany and many of them are known now and uh, somehow have reintegrated themselves in society without too much problem from the German government. But, but that was a 1,000 just from Germany. And you've got Chechnya, you've got the Stans in, in southern, uh, southern Russia, you've got the Balkans, you've got northern African jihadists, you've got such a lot of different groups there. It's a massively internationalised conflict. And, of course, the allies of the US in the region, principally the Saudis, some of the other Gulf monarchies and Israel and Turkey, have been funding and arming these people for many years. You'll never get a situation like this in Iran, would you? Or would you? No, no. Iran is, well, the US would like it, of course. The US would love to have that sort of destabilisation because a destabilised, weak, fragmented state is the second best option for the big powers. The big powers would like to dominate the entire region if they can't control Damascus, you know, if they can't control Baghdad completely, for example, although the Baghdad government's very weak, they would like to see it uh, a mess and fragmented and fighting amongst themselves, you know, but Israel loves to see that, then Israel can eat up bits of territory, Israel can slice off bits of Lebanon, slice off bits of Syria, for example. So they would like to see that, but Iran is very cohesive, and if you look at some of the the better informed US analysts. I mean, that's another reason why they keep coming back to Iran. Iran is a stable semi-democracy, basically. It is coherent. It is uh, institutionally very strong. It has capacity and it has political will. That's what makes Iran such a big threat, basically, to Israel and the US. So they've tried attacks. They've got two terrorist groups. They've got fragments of Daesh that they've used in Iran. They've got this group, the MEK, you know, which used to be a used to be a Marxist group and really became opportunist collaborators, a type of a cult, collaborating with the US. So they had a base in Saddam Hussein's Iraq for quite a while. But they uh, have been rehabilitated in European and US terms to form sort of the pretext of some sort of exile, so-called alternative. But they've got no support in Iran at all. Iran is internally coherent and very strong politically. You know, even the people that aren't enamoured with um, a religious government basically support the nation, uh, most of them, because when it's under th- threat from, from the MEK or from Daesh or from, from the US, they'll rally to the government. A lot of those people that are nationalists um, will rally to the government because the government in Iran has basically done the right thing by by people in the sense of you know, the improvements of the standard of living, the improvements in education and health. I've made the point in recent times with Iran that, um, and I, I've got a chapter on Iran in my new book, which should be out in August, called Axis of Resistance, that Iran in the last 30 years has made the second best improvement in human development in the world after China. And the reason why China is so well in advance is, of course, the economic, the enormous economic growth and economic per capita growth in China. But Iran is number two because the level of schooling has improved massively and the level of health, principally the survival and health of children, has improved massively since the days of the Shah. It's not very well known, I don't think, but under the Shah, the average years of schooling was about two years. Two years per person in Iran. You know, they talk about so-called modern women and so on in Iran. It was a tiny elite of women that looked westernised there. The average schooling was two years, and now it's almost 10 years with virtual gender equity in Iran and the health improvements. So the UNDP and independent agency has, has shown that, basically. So 
there is a great degree of, of loyalty to the government uh, in Iran, and it is a coherent and, and quite powerful state, much more powerful than when the US sent Saddam Hussein against it back in the 80s. So you can well imagine how the country would have developed more if those US sanctions hadn't been on for all those years. Oh, absolutely. I mean, Iran has been at war for all of the 40 years since the Iranian Revolution, basically. Just like the, the poor Koreans, and I've always felt sorry for the North Koreans. They've been at war for a century. Imagine that, you know, is anyone entitled to be paranoid more than the North Koreans? They've had nuclear weapons pointed at them since the 1950s. They were at war with the Japanese for a couple of decades and then the U.S. for the next seven decades, you know. So Iran, it's true, there's been an economic war against Iran since 1979. Had there not been that, of course, they would have had even greater achievements. But Israel's not going to give up on Iran? No, because Iran, unlike Russia, which has a different relationship to Israel, Iran sees very clearly that Israel is the existential threat to the region. It's the cancer in the region that's destabilising the entire region. And that's why that consensus amongst the independent states of the region, the Lebanese resistance, Syria, the, the patriotic elements that have some decent political will in Iraq, and Iran realise that the region will never be at peace while there is a sectarian racist state in Palestine. Russia doesn't see it that way. It sees it in a different sort of way. Israel knows that Iran is supplying arms to the Palestinians, to the Lebanese resistance, to Syria, and that it's got tremendous capacity. And the colony in Palestine is a very small little state there and really very dependent on its external support. You know, So they, they have always lived in fear of Iran. Of course, not that it's anything to do with a sort of counter-racism against Jewish people in Palestine, rather the reverse. It's a system of Israel towards... Uh, at least half of the citizens living in occupied Palestine who are not proper citizens, basically. Trump might be pulling his head in a bit when he stops talking about, you know, bombing Iran or whatever, but you've mm. got Pompeo and Bolton and the other ones there. How much power have they got over Trump? Not a lot, it seems. They're sort of attack dogs, you know, they're barking a lot. Iran doesn't seem that concerned about it because they think that there's enough rat cunning in the, the deep state in the US that whatever their ambitions, they are smart enough not to be suicidal, basically. And I have shared that view for a while too there. I think that, um, you know, Iran, it's more than three times as big as Iraq. It's got far more coherence and far more capacity than, than Iraq ever had when the Bush administration decided to attack and and destroy Iraq. And they have, really, because um, although Iraq is struggling to have an independent voice, but it's fragmented and, and weak still, basically. But even in that case, Iraq still realises that, um, you know, the, the government has declared there, the president's declared that they will not allow Iraq to be used as a base to attack Iran, and the US has to try and live with that, basically. They know that the retaliation from Iran would be would be substantial, you know. So whatever Bolton says, I don't think we need to pay too much attention to it. He says that because he gets praised by the Western media, he gets praised by Israel and and his um, a faction of people in the U.S. Um, in effect, he's not saying much different to the U.S. Congress. Let's remember that when while it was Trump that agreed to put the U.S. embassy in Jerusalem and attracted a lot of condemnation from that. But the U.S. Congress in the 90s had voted for that almost unanimously. I think there was 10 people that abstained. 
Minus those 10, the entire U.S. Congress in the mid-90s, this is during the Clinton administration, they voted to put the... So the policy with Israel and the U.S. is not to do with one party or one faction or to do with Trump. It's, it's very deep. It's very widespread, and it's very difficult for any U.S. politician to escape that tremendous influence. The one interesting thing is probably more than the political people or political advisors. Remember, political advisors come and go, you know. Poulton can be appointed, he can be sacked, you know, tomorrow just as um, some of the previous officials were. But the Zionist lobby in the U.S. Um, is going through some changes at the moment. There's one interesting article um, yesterday in the Washington Post by two prominent uh, academics, Zionists, who call themselves lifelong Zionists, who are now calling for a boycott on Israel because they love Israel, they want to save Israel, and they're calling for a boycott until an Arab state is established or there is a single democratic state where all Palestinians have equal citizenship in whatever they want to call it, Israel or Palestine. Now, that's a curious logic to get to a an end, which is one that most of the Palestinians are now calling for, a single democratic state with equal citizenship in the right. So there's something, there's a bit of movement going on under the surface in the US there, and I think we should be paying a bit more attention to that and a bit less to individuals like uh, Pompeo and, and Bolton. And where does all that fit in with Kushner's meeting in Bahrain? Well, Kushner, of course, he's a, another advisor, um, the, you know, the, the son-in-law to the president, and given that he's um, Jewish and a Zionist, a committed Zionist and a, a real estate person, Trump has given him a, a role in this. And the meeting in Bahrain was... Remember, all of these um, Arab monarchies in the Persian Gulf, Bahrain is really, in the region, is seen as a front for Saudi Arabia, basically. They're doing Saudi Arabia's business by saying, we'll create some solution for Israel... No one, not even in the, not even the very bureaucratic officials in the Palestinian Authority, none of them are taking it seriously. It's something, it's a manoeuvre to do with, it's a stunt to do with some more um, Gulf Arab monarchy money and maybe some small agreements with Egypt. But it's just something to try and advance the status of Israel in the region as it attempts to annex more Arab territory up to wipe out the West Bank and to occupy Syrian territory and it's still occupying Lebanese territory too so I don't think it's been taken very seriously in the region but Kushner has been given a platform in Bahrain backed by the Saudis but Bahrain is a front for the Saudis in that, in that sense. Remember it was the Saudis that sent in an army to put down the, the democratic uprising in Bahrain uh, a few years back so I don't think the Kushner plan really... Even in the US media, they're talking of it as dead on arrival, basically. I don't think we need to take that too seriously. But there, will, there may well be um, some money to be thrown around to buy some people off in, in coming months, but um, certainly no one of any substance, not even, not even in, the, in the media in the US, is taking it very seriously. You might say that some of the Zionists in the Jewish Zionists in America are having second thoughts, and younger Jewish people in the US are also looking to yes. what they believe in. But then you've got the Christian Zionists; they seem to be more dangerous than all the others. Yeah, there, there are extremists in that group, which is more linked to the um, 
to the Republican Party, um, historically remember that the, the Zionists in the US historically have been more make, linked to the Democrat Party. They see themselves as liberals, as smaller, li- smaller liberals more or less, you know, mm. anti-racist, sort of liberal in temperament and so on. And it's true, I think there is a bit of a groundswell going on there. These people are what I call, well, most of them are what I'd call left Zionists, you know, like the Natalie Portmans of the world. Natalie Portman, remember she turned down a $2 million prize in Israel because Netanyahu was going to present it. And so effectively, although she doesn't support the, the boycott divestment campaign, effectively she made a statement for the boycott of Israel by, by not going to Israel and turning down $2 million for that. Not because she doesn't support Israel. She was born in Israel. She likes it, but she likes the idea of a kinder, friendlier Israel, you know, that's sort of friendly to its uh, Palestinian... Well, what I don't know how they see it, because clearly they, they're not co-citizens, basically. But there is certainly that movement in the U.S., which is more inclined to the liberal side of politics. And uh, there's a split between them and the... Zionists in Israel who are really happy with Trump and the others because of all of the belligerence and belligerence towards Iran and uh, the apparently very great generosity towards Israel at the expense of Israel's neighbours, you know. So there's a split growing between Jews in Israel and Jews in the US, a fairly significant split. And there is one group called Jewish Jews for Peace who say they have shifted from being left Zionists to anti-Zionists, that is to say they are against the racial state completely or a religious state. Um, but even the left Zionists, like these people that just published in the Washington Post, are now saying something that seems really, and is in many respects, against the whole idea of Israel as a religious state to say that they want equal citizenship. That's the most radical concept now, really, given that the occupation of the West Bank has gone to the stage that it has. I don't think any serious analyst believes that a two-state solution is possible, as they might have 30 years ago. And so the most credible option really is a single democratic state with equal citizenship for the Palestinians. Now, there's about 6.5 million Palestinians and about 6.5 million Jews currently in occupied Palestine. So you give equal citizenship to everyone living there before we get to the right-to-return issues, and effectively you don't have a religious state anymore. You've got some sort of pluralistic state, uh, whatever whatever name it's going to be called. So if the left Zionists in the U.S. keep going down that track, it's likely to influence the, the lobby substantially. Of course, then you still have the interests of the big powers, whatever the Christian Zionists, let's say whatever block they form part of. Remember that Israel was created not just for the Zionists, but so that Britain and then the U.S. have a toehold in the region, have influence in the region. They would like to see Israel be the dominant state in the Middle East. At the moment, it's a a rather small state, a small aggressive state. If it were the dominant state in the region controlling the whole Middle East, then, of course, the big powers are able to have greater influence and control the region through, through their proxy there. So Israel doesn't exist just for the Zionists. That's important to remember. Thank you, Tim. Thanks, Jan. And that, of course, was Dr. Tim Anderson. Perth company Danakali Limited is proposing to develop the Kololu Potash Project, a 50-50 joint venture between Danakali and the Eritrean National Mining Company. The area is one of the largest unexploited potash 
basins globally with over 6 billion tonnes of potassium-bearing salts suitable for the production of potash fertilisers. On the face of it, it appears to be of benefit both for the people of Eritrea and the company. But according to human rights activists, the people will not see the benefits as Eritrea is ruled by a dictator and there is no constitution and human rights record is dire. I'm speaking with Tazaz Mengusha, Eritrean now living in Western Australia, who attended a recent AGM in Perth of the company. I asked him first about his life in Eritrea and how and why he came to Australia. My name is Tazaz Mengusha. Uh, I am originally from Eritrea. I was studying in a uni uh, journalism and mass communication, and uh, I graduated in 2007. After that, like many other people in Eritrea, I was assigned with a certain department of the government to the Minister of Information. I worked there for two to three years, and then I left Eritrea and I went to Sudan, and from Sudan I came to Australia. There is this unlimited national service in Eritrea. It's for everybody, whether you are in a government uh, department or whether you are in the defense, whether you are in Air Force or Minister of Education, Minister of Health, whatever it is, you have to serve the country. The problem is not about serving the country, but the problem is unlimited and you don't get paid. And working in the Minister of Information has its own problems because the government is not tolerant to the journalists, so it has additional problems. And I'd imagine going through Sudan, it was fairly safe, but a lot of young people from Eritrea take the sea route, and many of them don't make it. Unfortunately, it's true. Got so many family members, some acquaintances, some friends, some of them who were with me in high school, in junior school, they have died in the Mediterranean Sea. I was lucky enough to be resettled in Australia, but it's true that uh, we lost so many lives. Today we're focusing on your attendance at the AGM of the Australian company Danakali. I think it's a good idea to start with the name of the company and some details of the company because uh, Australia is politically and to some extent economically a bit far from Africa. Australia is a neighbour to the Asian countries. So I believe that most Australians, they might not have uh, detailed information about Eritrea, a small country in the Horn of Africa. So I think it's a good idea to start with the company. The Nakel Limited is uh, an Australian company. It is listed uh, in the stock market, ASX in Australia. And at the same time, it's also listed in London Stock Exchange. And recently, this company, the Nakel, it's in a joint venture with the Eritrean government for a mining project in Eritrea. It's a potash mining project. The potash is located in the eastern part of Eritrea in a Danakil depression close to the coastline and it's in the eastern part of uh, Eritrea. The project started drilling in 2010 and production will start in 2021 or 2022 depending on for those of us who do not know where Eritrea is, as I said before, located in the Horn of Africa, as a neighbor to Ethiopia, a neighbor to Sudan, Djibouti, 
and then the Red Sea. So on the other side of the Red Sea, there are Yemen, Saudi, with many people. And this Australian company believes that they're going to make a great deal of money out of this project. Yes, according to the management, the project will be profitable. The project has low mining and low transportation costs. They call it open-cut mining, which is the shallowest possible potash deposit, so they will not have more mining costs. And uh, transportation is, is going to be cheap because it's located 70 kilometers from the coastline, so they will save a lot of money as far as transportation is concerned as well. And the other thing is the potash quality is very high grade, economically viable for the coming 200 years. It has different levels, the coming 10 years, the coming 50 years, and the coming 200 years. You know, as we go deeper and deeper, the resources will be depleted, but at the surface, the potential of the project is very high. And who are those that they are going to employ at this site? According to the management, they will have contractors. Some of them will be from South Africa. These are the people who have high skills, but they say they will also hire local people. And that's the concern we have because historically, if we see the Eritrean government, members of the national service are forced to work in mining projects and they don't get paid. So Eritrean use might be working in the project, but it's less likely they will be paid. History, if it has shown us anything about the Eritrean government, they will never pay to its citizens. Now, you say the Eritrean government. Have they been elected by the people? Absolutely. They have never been elected by the people. It's sometimes a norm that I am using the word government, but technically, realistically, it's not a government. It's not elected by the people. It's there because it has the power. In practice, it's not a government. It's a group of people who are running the country. They have been in power for 30 years without having any election. They didn't have any constitution. They have disassembled the National Assembly, so we cannot call them government. Well, how do they stay in power? Well, uh, it, it's going to be a very long story, but Eritrea, it was an Italian colony. And in 1960s, 1970s, we started an armed struggle against Ethiopia because Ethiopia occupied after uh, Italians, after the British left. There was also federation. It's a long story, but we got our independence in 1991. The leaders who led the revolution, they came to power because there was power vacuum after Ethiopia left. And after that, they didn't transfer into a civilian government. So we have almost, we can call it a military government because at the beginning they were members of the military, members of the revolution, and they have never transferred the country into a civilian government and they are in power for the last 29 years. You went to the annual general meeting and put forward a number of questions. Can I ask you to repeat those questions and what you were told by the 
the management who were there to answer questions? I have asked a couple of questions, you know, because they have this uh, time limit. It was only for two hours. I have to also give chance for other shareholders. They have to raise their concerns. They have to ask questions. So I only got a couple of questions to ask, but they were very detailed. I asked to the director that Eritrea is cited as an African North Korea by media, non-government organizations, by intergovernmental organizations such as UN bodies, and some describe Eritrea as the most repressive and rogue state. How would you respond to these people, I asked him. And the, the director answered, well, he doesn't agree with the characterization of the situation. Contrary to the facts on the ground, the director said Eritrea is a politically stable country, he said they have a very good uh, relationship with the government, so he doesn't live with this characterization of Eritrea becoming an African North Korea. Also asked him about the claim that the Eritrean government is using slave labor in mining projects. He said uh, he is aware that the Nixon company, a Canadian mining company, is taken to high court in Canada for uh, allegations of using slave labor, but he confirmed to me, he assured me, that nothing will happen under his watch in his company. He will do his best that slave labor will not be used. But he was basically trying to defend the interests of the company. You know, we expect any director of a certain company, he would promise he will do this, he will do that. But in practice, in Eritrea, it's very difficult to maintain uh, a very good working relationship. Explain more about your claims of slave labour in Eritrea. There are certain factors which everybody cannot deny. For example, this national service scheme, it started in 1994. I was maybe grade two or grade three, year, one, year two or year three. People have been in this national service for 25, 26 years, and they are getting paid only pocket money. Some of them have been for 25, 26 years, some of them for 20 years, some of them for 15 years, and they still continue the national service. So this national service, if you employ somebody, and if he or she has six children at home, and if he is in the army for, let's say, two years, three years, even without seeing them, I would characterize this as a slave because he is not getting paid, he is not able to raise his children, he does not have any future. This by itself is, by definition, slave is somebody, you employ him, he will work for you day and night, and then you will not pay him. That's what exactly the government is doing in Eritrea. I believe that the Saudi Royal family is a friend of what you would term the dictator at Eritrea. Is that correct? One thing about the Eritrean government is it didn't follow international rules. It didn't follow international norms. The Eritrean government can be a friend of anyone as long as they give him some money or as long as the government believes it will have some advantage. I assure you that not only with the Saudi government, 
They could be friends with anyone. They do have this unpredictable behavior, undiplomatic behavior in the international scenario. So they can be friends sometimes with Saudi, sometimes with Qatar, sometimes with other uh, Gulf states. But at the same time, they don't have any consistent relationship with the state. So it's volatile, it's unpredictable always. What do you believe you achieve by attending? By attending the AGM, the main thing is, I think, raising awareness among shareholders about the situation in Eritrea because most of the shareholders, they have very limited information. I was able to share with them the grievances we have, and I brought to their attention the problems uh, in Eritrea. So the main thing is trying to share our concerns with the shareholders. Another one is uh, because there is no checks and the balances in Eritrea, we really don't know where the money is going. Uh, I honestly uh, went to them and talked to them about the revenue the government will get uh, from the project, the government will use it to buy loyalty from the army or from the security. It will prolong the suffering of our people. So I brought this one also to the attention of the shareholders. Was this in the meeting or outside the meeting? I raised the questions in the meeting, but individually also I spoke with them outside as well. What was the reaction of people when you spoke to them one one by one or one to one? Talking to them one by one, I think uh, it was more open. It was informal, so it was candid. And uh, some of them, they they tried to understand the situation because they didn't have that much information. Speaking to them one to one, uh, I think I was able to convince a number of them. The discussion was maybe productive or fruitful. The main thing is that shareholders, their main concern is they spend money in this project. They won't return, at least they won't save their money. Most of the questions were about the share price, about the payments for the directors and the managers. But there was one question which was very honest about the Eritrean land system. He asked to whom does the land belong. The director said, in Eritrea, land belongs to the government. Those people who live in that area, the traditional landowners in that area, they were made to leave that area, and they were not paid any compensation. I mean, all over the world, if, uh, for example, in Australia or in any other country, if there are traditional landowners, if there are people in the area where the mining is taking place, you compensate them reasonably, and then you tell them to move somewhere else because it's a national project, they have to move, but you have to pay them compensation. Uh, in Eritrea, they haven't been paid anything. That it makes it uh, a bit worrying. One of the shareholders' question was relevant in that case. He expected for the traditional landowners to be compensated, but they didn't get any compensation. What's the situation for the people in Eritrea in, in other areas of their lives? I'm thinking about education, health care, housing, clean water? There are some deep-rooted, some structural problems in, in Eritrea. As you said, the basic services like education and health, I assure you about that, they don't even exist almost. 
For example, if somebody is sick in Eritrea, either he has to go to Ethiopia because there is now some, uh, some relationship has started in Ethiopia, so they can go to Ethiopia or they can go to Khartoum, Sudan. This is because the government cannot provide basic health care. So if you are in Eritrea, in the capital, Asmara, and if you are sick, then you will probably go to Khartoum or to Addis or Matala to, to get treatment. Health care almost doesn't exist. This is also a government where it cannot even provide basic food. There has been a severe shortage of food in Eritrea. Sometimes when I was there, I used to wake up at uh, 5 o'clock or 4 o'clock to get uh, it. So food-wise also, people are really suffering. Water shortage is, there is TV shortage of water. So basic services are not provided uh, by the government. Human rights, abuses? It's good to mention some of the facts in Eritrea then uh, to help us understand the human rights concern in Eritrea as well. Because... In 1991, when the government came to power, it took them maybe four or five years to dismantle any institution in Eritrea. So we are talking about a country where there is no constitution, which means there is no rule of law. The president is technically above the law. An individual is above the law. Eritrea has no, as I said before, national assembly. The last time the national assembly met was before 18 years which is 2002. Most of the members of the National Assembly are in prison or in exile. Eritrea has no private media for the last 18 years. Eritrea has no independent judiciary system. The Eritrean regime enforces unlimited national service. Some people have been in the national service, as I said before, for 25, 20 years, and they don't get paid. And this resulted in mass exodus. People are leaving Eritrea and they are asking asylum in Europe or in Canada or some of them in, in Australia, even in Sudan, in Ethiopia. So human rights, the government has destroyed institutions, structures which are supposed to defend the human rights. Is this structures, is this institutions, like what I said, the court doesn't exist, then you wouldn't expect a human rights to be respected in Eritrea. The rights of individuals cannot be respected because there are no institutions, there are no structures who could defend the individual's rights. We have rights in Australia because we have the three branches of government. We have the judiciary, we have the legislative, we have the executive. These checks and the balances keep an individual's rights, but in Eritrea these three branches doesn't exist, so we cannot expect human rights to be respected in Eritrea. What about the international community? Surely all this is known, well known, the situation. What about international bodies like the UN, like Human Rights Watch, organisations like that? Why aren't they screaming loudly about the situation in Eritrea? That's a very important question. In the international arena, there are bullies, like when we go to school, there are some bully students, you know, and in the international arena, uh, every now and then, rogue states, repressive states, they come into existence. And uh, traditionally, the international community, as one entity, has been fighting against this bully in the international arena. We can bring, like, Nazi Germany was not only defended by England 
allied powers stand against Nazi by standing with um, with England. Australia didn't defeat the Imperial Japan in 1940, Second World War. Uh, of course, some countries uh, joined Australia, and the bully was defended. Before even four or five decades, uh, the situation in Cambodia, Pol Pot, killing hundreds of thousands of Cambodians, but it was the support from Vietnam which freed the Cambodians. For some reason, the international community has not fulfilled its obligation as far as the suffering of Eritrea is concerned. This, the situation in Eritrea, especially as far as refugees is concerned, it's even worse than, uh, than North Korea or than Cambodia four or five decades. The international community has not done its job as far as supporting the Eritrean people is concerned. The Eritrean people have been trying to restore rule of law, has been trying to establish a democratic government, especially from overseas, but they haven't got uh, enough support either from the neighboring countries or from uh, uh, the international community as a whole. So I, I can say it's a forgotten uh, scenario. Finally, what is the role for Eritreans living in Australia or in other countries to try and save the situation, to try and change the situation? At this time, uh, there is this uh, enough campaign or reactive movement. Most of Eritreans, I can say, they want change, but the problem is we are too far from uh, Eritrea and we can only support a certain degree, we can change the government, uh, but we can support Eritreans who could change the government from within. There have been Yakum movement or enough campaign in, uh, in Canada, in Europe especially, and to a certain degree in Australia, but uh, as far as I can see, the one in Australia is um, limited. It's not as strong as, uh, as I wish it or as not as strong as all we wish it. Uh, but it could have uh, a supporting uh, effect to the, the changes which will come in Eritrea. I would probably want to mention some points to our listeners, maybe especially if, uh, to Eritreans. My message to all Eritreans is that uh, unless and until we form accountable government, the resources of the country will be squandered uh, by the regime. We don't have any checks and balances, so the resources will be squandered. Uh, and secondly, as I said before, I call up the international community to support the Eritrean people in their struggle for freedom and justice. Nobody has won uh, justice and uh, you know freedom by itself. Always there is collaboration. I mentioned two cases in Cambodia and the Nazi Germany. And similarly, uh, we are expecting some support internationally for our cause. Thank you. And that was Nazis talking about the situation in his home country, Eritrea. That's about it for me for today, but I will be back again next Tuesday at 4 o'clock. Green Left Comedy Debates coming up very soon. I'll just put the message on for that, and after that you'll be hearing from Done By Law. Bye for now.